I'll invite Michael to uh, give us an acknowledgement of country. Thank you, Michael. <laughs> well, tonight, which is um, uh, uh, Bodhi, we celebrate uh, the Buddha's uh, enlightenment. Uh, the celebration of birth, death and enlightenment is actually Wesak, which is in May. But tonight we can celebrate the, um, the matter of uh, Sujata, who was the village girl who brought um, milk and rice to the Buddha when he was at the point of death uh, from uh, years of asceticism and uh, restored him to life and nursed him to life so that he could actually um, sit under the Bodhi tree, the tree of enlightenment, and uh, come to enlightenment. So... Uh, it was rice and milk for Su Sujata and the Buddha. Uh, it's tea, the tea and cake of the way uh, for us. And this is to inspire your practice for years to come. So treasure uh, this food uh, that we have tonight. Um, I'll begin with a brief account of the Buddha's life, uh, including the uh, legend of his enlightenment. Uh, I say legend because we don't know the historical truth, and that's all right, because we don't so much seek literal historical truth, but rather the great archetypal themes to inspire our practice and guide our lives. We can plug into the Buddha's enlightenment in many ways at different levels, but finally the way is experiential, engaging the deepest parts of our self which are also the depths of the universe. Once upon a time, or two and a half thousand years ago, in 566 or 563 um, BC, uh, Prince Siddhartha was born into the noble family of the Shakya clan at Kapilavastu. It was foretold that he would be a great ruler or a great spiritual teacher. His father decided that he should be a great ruler and undoubtedly be his successor. As a royal youth, 
Prince Siddhartha was raised in luxury. His father had built for him three palaces, one for each season of the year, and there he enjoyed himself in the company of his friends. At the age of 16, he married his cousin, a beautiful princess named Yasodhara, and they lived a contented life in the Shakyan capital, Kapilavastu. During this time, he was probably trained in the martial arts and skills of statecraft. It seems that the genie uh, who could grant an infinity of wishes was at his command. Uh, hedonism, like asceticism, uh, can be a rough path. I, I'm inferring this because I feel my life's not been all that hedonistic, but I think that if I can use a multiplier effect uh, on it, uh, I could imagine that it is also challenging, um, perhaps as challenging as asceticism. But even excess becomes boring, and power in time brings onerous responsibilities with it. Accordingly, when the prince reached his late 20s, he became increasingly troubled about questions concerning the purpose and meaning of life. Which are all of our questions uh, at different stages of our life. Childhood, adolescence, um, especially in times of crisis. Uh, yeah, and I think being old and facing death also, uh, those questions uh, remain uh, for us. For him, the question is the purpose of our existence, the enjoyment of sensual pleasures, the achievement of wealth and status, the exercise of power, or is there something beyond these that is more real and fulfilling? And those were questions that obsessed him. Um, he manages to get out of the palace uh, where he's been walled up, it seems, by his father um, to protect him from the raw realities of the world and our life in it. Um, one of his surreptitious visits to the outside world, he had, there was a charioteer who was friendly and would uh, conduct him out or get him out of the gates or had the key. And uh, so the prince uh, got to explore the world and to see reality uh, there. On these visits, he encountered an old person, a sick person, and a corpse. Yeah. Uh, on another visit to the world outside, um, he encounters a monk, and this shows him that there is a way of life that can support his inquiry, that can support his questioning that he can enter come to terms, resolve those questions. So at the age of 29, uh, Prince Siddhartha, or Shakyamuni, leaves his wife and child. In the prime of his life, with his wife and his parents weeping, he cut off his hair and beard, put on the saffron robes of a mendicant, and entered upon the homeless life uh, it is said that he left the palace on the very day that his wife Yasodhara gave birth to their only child, the boy 
Rahola. We could say, and it has often been said, that Shakyamuni missed out on the path of family and lost the opportunity to find the middle way uh, in the midst of the responsibilities of marriage and bringing up a family, uh, not to speak of being a ruler. As lay people, we practice the way in the midst of our everyday life, which may include marriage and children. But the way that we practice depends on Shakyamuni's discovery of it. Uh, in terms of his quest, uh, we could say he did what he had to do, and uh, we are the beneficiaries of that. So the way unfolds for him in three, uh, three stages. Um, so he, st he starts with the study of the philosophies and meditation systems of his day. Uh, he leaves behind his home and family, heads south for Magadha, uh, in whose environs small groups of seekers were quietly pursuing their quest for spiritual illumination, usually under the guidance of a guru. At that time, Northern India could boast of a number of accomplished masters famous for their philosophical systems and achievements in meditation. Shakyamuni mastered their teachings and systems for meditation, but though he reached exalted levels of concentration, uh, or what we call samadhi, he found these teachings were insufficient for they did not lead to the goal that he was seeking, which is release from the sufferings of sentient existence. He became the prince of the philosophers and the prince of meditators. And the story goes, and this kind of story reverberates throughout history, that uh, all these teachers wanted him to become a teacher too. And he refused and moved on. The second stage is the stage of austerities, sacrifices and accepting challenges. Shakyamuni then spent six years with a band of ascetics practicing austerities. He learned to subsist on a few grains of rice a day and almost died. Uh, he was the almost dead prince of the ascetics. Out of his near catastrophe comes the middle way, which avoids the extremes of sensual indulgence on one hand and self-mortification on the other. Shakyamuni had experienced both extremes, the former as a prince and the latter as an ascetic, and he knew they were ultimately dead ends. To achieve the middle way, however, he realised he would first have to regain his strength. Thus he gave up his practice of austerities and resumed taking nutritious food. The story goes that a girl from the village whose name was Sujata, discovering him at the point of death, gave him milk and rice to revive him and continued doing this until his strength returned. At this time, the five other ascetics who had been living in attendance on him, hoping that when he attained enlightenment, he would serve as their guide, saw him partake of substantial meals and they became disgusted with him and left him, thinking that this princely ascetic had given up his exertion and uh, reverted to a life of luxury. So it's interesting, it moves from one extreme uh, to uh, the other. Uh, a life of unbelievable luxury 
and a life of the hugest deprivation. And the middle way sometimes is thought of as, you know, justifiably as uh, a kind of a middle path between those two extremes. So he, um, he takes food, not a lot, but enough to sustain him. And there are many images of the middle way being like tuning a string, a string on a guitar, for instance. Um, not too slack, uh, not too tight. Um, but the middle way is also radical, um, as we will see. It's, it goes beyond being an average between uh, extremes. The middle way is often expressed as uh, we are because listen. Restored and solitary at last, Shakyamuni undertook to awaken to find liberation. He got support from the village children. Sujata continued to feed him, and Svasti, the buffalo boy, brought him fresh uh, kusa grass to sit on. Um, so this grass is an early form of uh, safu, which we are sitting on uh, tonight. Um, Shakyamuni vowed not to rise until he had awakened. He sat resolutely for 49 days and nights under the Bodhi tree, the tree of enlightenment. It said that while he sat there that his koan was, why do we suffer? Great koan. Is there liberation from suffering? What is liberation? At the end of the 49th night, at dawn, he looked up and saw the morning star and exclaimed, I and all beings have at this moment attained the way. Uh, in the history of Zen, there are many uh, versions of what he said. Uh, this is just uh, one of them. Uh, I and all beings, he looks up, sees the morning star and exclaims, I and all, all beings have at this moment attained the way. Shakyamuni's awakening under the Bodhi tree is the foundation myth for the Zen tradition. It's the source of the great stream of the Zen way and provides us with the deepest encouragement to awaken and confirm who we truly are and always have been and to walk that way into our lives. So in that moment of awakening, uh, what did Shakyamuni Buddha realise? What was his realisation? What was it that had him sweeping, sweepingly exclaim that he and all beings, including each of you and me, in that instant had attained the way? What did he realise? The 49 days and night, uh, nights um, that Shakyamuni 
Buddha uh, spent under the uh, Bodhi tree, uh, become at this time of the year the seven days and nights of Rohatsu Sashin, which is uh, uh, the session which we sit to uh, commemorate the Buddha's uh, sitting of 49 days. And characteristically, Rohatsu Sashin goes through to the dawn of the next uh, morning of the eighth uh, morning. And uh, even as we are sitting, we're not doing Rohatsu at the moment, but even as we are sitting here, uh, Glenn Wallace is uh, uh, conducting Rohatsu Sashin in uh, Dunedin, New Zealand, on St Martin's Island, uh, which I hugely recommend you to go there. It's one of those beautiful session venues where you have to cross the water uh, to do uh, session. And uh, that makes a profound difference to practice, crossing the water. And uh, so uh, Glenn will be coming here after doing Rahatsu session in Dunedin. He will come here as guest teacher in uh, January for our summer uh, session. So you can actually ask him all about the eighth morning yourself if you, you wish. Well, for several weeks, the newly awakened Buddha remained in the vicinity of the Bodhi tree, contemplating from different angles uh, the realization that he had experienced. Uh, and he was troubled with the question uh, was he to teach and try to share his realization? Should he um, share his realization with others? Uh, or instead remain quietly in the forest, enjoying the bliss of liberation alone. He opted to come out of the forest, to come down from the mountain, and then to spend the, the next more than 40 years walking the back roads of India. Um, and the expression is, for the sake of those with a little dust in their eyes. A spirit came to him, whispered in his ear, there are a few people out there you know, Shakyamuni, or oh, sorry, Buddha, by this point, uh, you know, who have only a little bit of dust in their eyes and uh, your words may be able to awaken them, so why don't you come down from the hill here? So what do we learn from this story? Um, we learn about stickability, uh, patience, determination, devotion to practice, uh, keeping uh, right on regardless. Important. And uh, we have this wonderful opportunity with a group to sit with um, here. Um, sitting alone is really important. Um, but sitting with others... Um, Sitting alone is very important. It makes you strong. You build your practice from that. But sitting with others opens you up, and that is incredibly important. And uh, we deepen as a sangha. We deepen together here. You keep right on regardless. But this is not about masochism or bruising of the body and soul. Uh, practice like the seasons. Uh, practice in the way that light crosses a wall, light and shadow crosses a wall. Uh, no blame. Okay, when you are lost, 
and you realise you are lost, you are home. Don't make a fuss about it. Just come back to your breath or to your calm uh, or to the fullness of the moment. Uh, no blame. Make it seamless. Um, uh, in that way, the, in that effortless way, um, you deepen. Stop judging your practice. When you are judging your practice, you separate. Let go of judging your practice. Just do it. Just this moment. It's sometimes said that uh, in Zen um, we practice in order to realise as the Buddha uh, realised. Which is true in its way. Um, But we awaken in our own way. Um, When you awaken like that, you recognise that it is the same uh, awakening. But the details are different. Everyone is different. But the nature of the experience is entirely recognisable and confirms what has always been the case. Uh, It's ancient, but it's as fresh as this moment. It predates Shakyamuni, outlasts us all, It outlasts Zen in the West and Zen in all the rest. We express our boundless gratitude and our love for the Buddha's example, though. His courage, his stickability, his stopping at nothing. And finally, his decision not to let what he realised remain a private ecstasy on some remote hill out of Makata. There's a great line from a poem by Anne Carson, um, contemporary poet. Um, there is no person without a world. This is very much as the spirit of, of awakening. There is no person without a world. I want to return to Shakyamuni before we uh, move on. Um, Shakyamuni under the Bodhi tree, in particular the time when demonic forces tried to unseat him because their king Mara claimed uh, a place, his place, under the, the Bodhi tree. By the way, please sit comfortably if you're not already sitting comfortably. As they proclaimed their leader's power, Mara demands that the Buddha produce a witness to confirm his spiritual awakening. Mara also tempted the Buddha with all kinds of um, sensual, sexual uh, images of power, uh, offered him huge um, um, uh, secular advantages. Um, The Buddha was able to resist all of this. It's a heroic story. But Mara demands that the Buddha, that Shakyamuni, produce a witness to confirm his awakening. The Buddha simply touched the earth with his right hand. 
Traditional accounts have the earth literally speaking on behalf of the Buddha, saying or even roaring, I am your witness. However, there are more subtle ways that the earth bears witness on our behalf. Listen. The Buddhist gesture of touching the earth and calling it to bear witness uh, also shows the indissoluble connection that each of us, um, that we all have to the earth as our true and timeless nature. When we realise that nature and our dependence on the earth itself, we can also comprehend that we have responsibilities to the world and to each other. If we are going to survive and ensure the survival of other species, human communities and indeed the earth itself, we must bear witness to it by maintaining the earth and by caring for it. I recently heard a program on the ABC um, in those weird ways that sometimes I've been watching television with Antoinette, my partner, and uh, we've been watching one of these forensic programs on Egyptian mummies and the fact that they were wrapped in, in the swaddling, but linseed oil had been used and the mummies had caught fire. I was sort of watching this with that kind of horrified boredom, you know, uh, that forensic programs often generate. And uh, um, <laughs> sort of, you can't turn it off, but you, you really <laughs> want to. <laughs> And uh, so I left and I got in the car and strangely um, there was a wonderful program on and it it was a program uh, on the Aboriginal practice of fire stick farming and land management. And um, I just want to talk a little bit about this then I'll talk about the the content of the program. This practice of fire stick farming uh, goes back uh, for time immemorial in uh, Aboriginal cultures. Uh, Bill Gamage in his classic book, The Biggest Estate on Earth, writes that Aboriginal people created an extraordinarily complex system of land management using fire and the life cycles of native plants to ensure plentiful wildlife and plant foods throughout the year. Their practice of fire stick farming is about how to burn well It's about how to use fire discreetly and how to prevent the gigantic and destructive bushfires that will likely multiply as we advance further into global warming. In the radio program, which was about a cool burn in and around Orange in southern New South Wales, the cool burn was being done by Aboriginal people to prevent massively destructive bushfires. It was a really moving program. I was especially moved by the mention of the fact that cool burning is slow burning and that slow burning gives animals and insects time to escape, to get out of the way. That in particular. Also that in a cool burn, you burn in a mosaic pattern and hence you don't burn everything. For instance, you don't burn out the home range say 10 hectares of a bird otherwise the bird has nothing to eat 
The fires are cool enough for families to walk through. Moisture level on ground protects invertebrates. Flames don't go up into the canopy, which means that the fire doesn't spread out of control. By burning the undergrowth, you reduce the chance of having huge and disastrous bushfires that we know today. Cool burns also involve the whole Aboriginal community, including children, who peel the bark from the trees to stop the flames reaching the canopy. So so much immense care um, of respect uh, for the creatures that share the environment. Uh, so much wisdom accumulated over millennia uh, in this cool burning. Uh, engagement is key in cool burning. In affecting it, you are caring for country. One of the old Aboriginal men on the ABC program said, if you look after country, country will look after you. On the program it was also said uh, that by looking after country, you're also caring for your community. Uh, all of this is uh, woven, interwoven together. It's also hard to imagine a better illustration of how to live what Buddhism calls mutual interdependency. That is, uh, uh, how to live uh, the fact that there is no person without a world. Uh, our very nature is like that. You destroy the world, there is no person either. Intimacy with country, as uh, Michael uh, illustrated so vividly in his talk, is powerfully present in Noongar culture, and we have so much to learn uh, from Noongar people. I think it's fair to say we find ourselves sleepwalking in country, um, which we know nothing about for the most part, or very little about. And that country has been of immense and fundamental spiritual significance to the Noongar people for more than 40,000 years. And fire stick farming has been a prevalent practice by Noongar people over the millennia as well. So although the, the radio program was about orange, it's also was practiced here for millennia. And I don't know, it maybe still is. Well, not everything's gone. But fire was a token. So it's a living dynamic. Surely we have so much to, li- to learn um, from Noongar people about how to live and practice the way in this place. In this regard, sitting on country with guidance from Michael is surely an important first step because such sitting makes real the spiritual connections, uh, the spiritual relationship between Noongar spirituality and Zen spirituality. It makes it manifest. Uh, Sitting in Kings Park, Michael gave a talk about uh, country there, about the spiritual significance of what we call Kings Park among our people and we sat for two rounds and then we had a discussion after that and um, which was very very rich um, and informed by the sitting on country and then we had went and had coffee and uh, a very enlivening discussion and uh, interchanges there as well and we have um, on January the 1st New Year's Day such a wonderful we have another um, 
uh, sit on, on country uh, with, my, <coughs> with Michael guiding us there, so I, I would uh, encourage you all to come along. And what a great way to start the, the new year. So sitting on country um, is a way of bearing witness uh, to suffering, to the suffering of the Noongar people. Um, and I want to just... Uh, and also is a first step uh, to healing as well. And I just wanted to touch uh, a little on... Um, uh, Roshi Bernie Glassman's uh, Three Tenets for Peacemaking. Um, so just as a quick background, um, the Zen Peacemaker Order is an organisation of socially engaged Buddhists. It was founded by Roshi Bernie Glassman and his wife, Sandra Jishu Holmes, in 1996 as a means of expanding Zen practice into larger spheres, spheres of influence such as social services, business and ecology. Um, but with a greater emphasis on peace work. Uh, the account of the three tenets that follow comes from a, a book called The Dude and the Zen Master, dialogues between Jeff Bridges, uh, a movie actor, and uh, Bernie Glassman, and was present to me from Michael when, almost when we first met. Um, so these are the three tenets for peacemaking. The first is not knowing. I'll try and relate these to the Buddhist experience because this flows directly uh, from it. This is to experience the vastness beneath and beyond our names and our roles. When you experience uh, not knowing, the whole world walks through your heart and ultimately the whole world is your heart. When the Buddha... Uh, on his awakening exclaimed, now I see that all beings are the Tathagata, uh, uh, now I see that all beings are this one. It's very interesting, he doesn't use me. Uh, and uh, Because I think me is too limiting a designation for what he's indicating. Now I see that all beings are this one. This uh, Tathagata are the Tathagata. Um, there's no coming and going in Tathagata. Okay? There's no knowing in Tathagata. There is no separation in Tathagata. Uh, so only expression is uh, Tathagata is not knowing. Uh, vast, beyond, uh, vast beyond recognition. The second of the three tenets of peacemaking, bearing witness to the joys and suffering of the world. It's very, this is Buddhism, so it's very easy to dwell on suffering here, and it's been an important theme in our talk, but it's also bearing witness to the joys of the world. And I think sometimes we miss, we miss that aspect uh, of it. And I think bearing witness, being present to, being open to, is very much that spirit of mudita, uh, wishing all beings well, um, uh, letting our envy fall away uh, in the pleasure in their success. So there is also that, and to give a lift to this talk, which has been resolutely on suffering. Um, 
So bearing witness to the joy and suffering of the world, this means not backing away from what comes up inside you or that you see and hear in life. So, I mean, this is so characteristic of the way. Um, when the feeling of anger arises, we are open to that. Um, when we meet a confronting person as best as we can, we are open to that uh, person. Uh, this is the way itself. Realisation, uh, whether it be under the Bodhi tree uh, or elsewhere, is very sweet. But if you continue to walk the way, you are also taking on uh, uh, your anger, your disappointment, um, and the confronting things that life uh, brings to your door on any day. This is bearing witness to the demons of our fear and avoidance, uh, which are at the root of much of our suffering and of humanity generally. We suffer because we are ignorant of the nature of reality and our relation to it. In particular, we suffer because we are caught up in dualistic conceptions of self and other. This is the I am in here and you are out there notion, uh, which Hakuin uh, Yasutani called the fundamental delusion of humanity. I am in here and you are out there. Uh, when you realise your true nature, that drops away um, and comes back. Inherently, we share the Buddhist enlightenment, which is at the deepest level, is also our own. But the tangled forests of our delusions and attachments regarding who we are and our relation to the world shuts out the vastness of our true nature and we lose connection with both environment and community. Um, I just want to tell a, a, a story which is uh, lighter uh, here, but um, it's also a story of, uh, for me of bearing witness and I remember playing a gig in East Perth and uh, getting lost trying to find my way home. It was after midnight and uh, I crossed the railway tracks and then started to take an unfamiliar route. Um, I felt completely adrift and I stumbled along one dark, uneven path uh, after another um, and I was reaching the edge of panic. I knew I was lost and suddenly I realised that I was among people and I, I was among uh, Noongar people and they were talking in low voices around fires in old rusted kerosene tins and cut down 44 gallon drums um, and the sound went all the way back in all directions um, and I tried to find words for it it was like a murmuring warmth it was the only words I could find um, and I, you know, I could barely see anyone at all, but uh, there was this murmuring uh, warmth. And I felt perfectly safe um, and even reassured, uh, but I was still lost uh, completely. And um, the next morning I went into the studio where I was working with my producer, Anthony Cormican, and he was helping to assemble my piece called Secret Sandhills. And... Uh, I asked him to create a segment called Murmuring Warmth and uh, 
he was absolutely brilliant at, at combining. He took a lot of the ruined piano sounds that I brought in. And I went off to make coffee for the both of us because I never breathe down his neck when he's working. And he, he came up with a sound which was actually very, very like the sound of the night before. And we called it Murmuring Warmth. And we threaded Murmuring Warmth through this piece called Secret Sandhills. And Secret Sandhills, in turn, was inspired by Timmy Chapangati, Western Desert artist, great 1972 picture, also called Secret Sandhills painted at Papania on an irregularly shaped sheet of uh, masonite from the dump. Uh, this was 2000 and when I saw the picture at the Genesis and Genius exhibition at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. I sought permission from Daphne Williams, uh, who was the administrator of Papania Tula in Alice Springs, to use the image and also to dedicate the piece to Timmy Japangati, who sadly had died earlier that year. Uh, I sent a cassette of some of the music that I had composed uh, to Daphne Williams, who promised that it would be go out by truck uh, to Timmy Chapangati's uh, wife, whose name was Number Jimpa, um, and uh, so I waited for you know for a couple of weeks, and there was no news at all from Alice Springs, and no news from Daphne Williams about how the music had gone over because the music. Uh, you know, it was very, very important. Um, I felt it was important and it felt important to have that permission. But I finally rang Daphne Williams uh, two or three weeks later to learn the fate of my proposal. And she said, oh yes, your cassette went out by truck uh, to Nampajimpa. And uh, everyone sat around and listened to the cassette and, and they said, um, they ha everyone had a really good laugh. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, yes, you have permission. <laughs> but what is important here in the midst of all of the darkness and difficulty uh, interculturally and that is that humour is also incredibly important and releasing. And uh, uh, yeah, I, although the personal story is a personal one, I, uh, I love the fact that they, they just laughed themselves silly when they heard all these ruined piano sounds uh, coming out of this cassette player. Um, so, yeah. Not taking yourself seriously is very important, I think, and it's one of the great aspects of the Zen way. It doesn't encourage you to take yourself seriously. Uh, it doesn't encourage you to take yourself at all. <laughs> so the third of the tenets is... Um, uh, in terms of practice, we have to learn to bear witness to whoever comes before us, and then the appropriate loving action arises. Okay, so it finally manifests as action. Um, you bear witness, uh, you stay with difficulty, you stay open, you listen, and your action arises, uh, often uh, naturally in those situations. Um, really important that finally it manifests as what we do in the world. I think each of us can think of an example of that from our own life. It's good to know the story of the Buddha's enlightenment for it's an inspiration. It's also important to bear witness to the joys and sufferings of the world. Um, 
which arises from intimacy with the world, uh, intimacy with flaw, uh, intimacy with light, intimacy with others. Uh, we are not separate. As well, uh, we take loving action as the Buddha did when he came down from that hill out of Magadha to teach and that teaching reverberates uh, over the centuries and comes down to us. That's the kind of loving action. It would have been so much easier to sit there and uh, indefinitely enjoy uh, his enlightenment. The way is not a private matter only. So the Buddha looked up and saw the morning star and said, Tonight and I and all beings have attained the way. What did he realise? 